Uh, With that, let's pray, and we'll read our passage, uh, the Church of Thyatira. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we have this place to gather, to worship you, to fellowship with one another, to study your word. Lord, we ask that you would guide us this day, that you would minister to us as uh, we focus our attention on your word. Lord, the book of Revelation is an intimidating book. There is a lot here that, is, that, that it can at times be difficult for us. And so today as we look at this church, um, there's difficulties. And sometimes the difficulties are because of what's said. Sometimes the difficulties are because of the hardness of our hearts and not uh, really desiring to, um, to allow you to be God. Uh, we um, carry that sin nature of desiring to be like you and desiring to um, have control of all things. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us, help me to put my guard down, help me to have courage. Lord, help us to honestly evaluate ourselves, our church, um, our culture, and areas that we, um, we're prone to stray in that is mentioned at this church at Thyatira. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless our time now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of the potter are broken into pieces, as I have received authority from my Father, And I will give him the morning star. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. I want to start with a quote. Daniel Atkin, who I've really enjoyed his his commentary on this. I see that he went to our friend Ben Howard Cemetery. That's that's often an accident. I Seminary. I texted him and I said, hey man, this guy, went, he's from your seminary, do you know him? I, like, I actually really like what he has to say. And he's like, oh yeah, that was my preaching professor. He's very balanced, I think you'd like him. 
I'm like, I do, I do. And, and uh, so he says on this church, uh, the church of Thyatira, uh, this is the longest of the seven letters and the most difficult. I'm going to give a hearty amen to this one. This is a very difficult letter. As Hemmer writes, it is also addressed to the least known, the least important, the least remarkable of all the cities. So if Ephesus was New York City, Thyatira would be like Mayberry or insert some name of some unknown town like Valley Center or whatever. This city was not on the map anywhere. But it's the longest of all the letters to the seven churches, and it is the most difficult to sort of wrap your mind around. I, I have spent the whole week sort of wrestling, reading everything I could get my hands on and going, oh man, Sunday's coming, Sunday's coming. Like, and so here we are. And so um, to remind ourselves, if we remember Ephesus as the loveless church, they're the church that had good doctrine, but they departed from the first love. Then we had, if I can do this, it went to Smyrna, which is the persecuted church. There was nothing against them. Last week, we covered uh, Pergamum, and they were the compromised church. Today, um, Thyatira, I haven't really decided what label I want to give them. They are either the adulterous church or the tolerant church. So you can pick one or make up your own. But the issue within this section is tolerance. And it's going to be difficult to kind of wrestle through, like, or it's been difficult for me wrestling through seeing the distinction between last week with compromise and tolerance um, th- that is this week. I remember about 15 years ago or so, Anna and I, we went on a trip with this guy Roland up to Salt Lake City. It was a sort of a planning trip to... Um, to prepare for an outreach that was supposed to happen like six weeks after our trip. And so we went there, and uh, it was the first time I'd been to Salt Lake City as an adult. I think I went there as a kid, but I don't really have many memories of it. And it was during Christmas time, so we went and saw the lights, and we found ourselves at the Temple Visitor Visitor Center, which was very impressive. And I remember walking sort of through the Visitor Center and seeing Scripture, like, King James Bible on the walls as they were sort of recruiting people in to their uh, belief system. And, and I don't, you know, I want to, I don't like to attack other groups. Like we have to, when we're dealing with the Latter-day Saints or Mormons, like to remember that when they were founded, they were the ones that came against evangelical Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, and said that the whole of the church was apostate and Jesus has given a new revelation that is steering us away. And so it's not me attacking. It's, I was there kind of, what are, not that I was looking at converting, but I was there just sort of taking in their message. And as I went through the, the, whatever the room was and saw all of this scripture, I, I, was, I remember being gripped with all of this scripture on the walls that was very much what we would sort of as evangelicals sort of categorize as the Romans road, you know, like all of the scripture that would lead somebody to faith in Christ was on the walls. And I remember really like grappling with like how many people would start into this, get saved, like in theory they could get saved because scripture is powerful, and then go into the system and really go against biblical teaching and really wrestling with like how much, 
First, does an individual have to know in order to be saved? And then how much does an individual have to sort of jettison to be saved? Like, like where's that line? And I don't even know if I'm making sense, but um, like there's knowing truth and accepting who Jesus is. But there's also truth, or not truth, there's, uh, there's ideas that contradict God's word and trying to figure out how much false can you take on and believe and adhere to um, without it uh, trumping, uh, disqualifying, annulling, making the truth that you know not valid? Um, A master of this is Josh Manning. Uh, I remember visiting him in, in Mongolia and as missionaries going into a culture and being very sensitive to the culture, trying to introduce the truth about Christ, but trying to figure out, well, what's American culture? What's American Christianity culture? What's Bible culture? What's their culture that's sin and not sin? Like, it, it, like it, Josh is amazing at this. My mind tends to explode with this. <laughs> like, and it's so much easier to do in other people's cultures, but in our own, it's so much harder to evaluate our own idols and places where we sort of commit adultery on God. See, the adulterous church isn't about adultery within their relationships, marriage. It, it's, it's adultery in their relationship with God. Charles Swindoll on this, just before we get in and slowly kind of get lost in the muck of it all, um, Charles Swindoll states on this passage, dealing with the the idea of being tolerant that was the sin of this church, says, if you pay close attention to television programs or movies, you'll observe much of the quote-unquote virtue of tolerance has been skewed. A culture that tolerates evil calls disagreement quote-unquote phobia. Taking a stand is considered quote-unquote hate. Conviction is seen as bigoted uh, fanaticism. Centuries-old Christian doctrine is regarded as discrimination. As in many doctrinally weak churches today, this situation prevailed in the ancient church of Thyatira. In his letter to the church, Christ addressed the issue of big sins in a small church and even bigger issue of tolerating them. And so we're going to get into this slowly. We begin with verse 18. Uh, and we read, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write. So le- what do we know about Thyatira? As we look at our map on the bottom left, that's Patmos where, um, where John the Apostle was exiled. He's down on the bottom left-hand screen, basically working a marble quarry. Um, think of Alcatraz Island. Um, and he gets this revelation from Jesus that he's to write down. And so the first portion is dealing with the seven churches. And so he writes the letter. We've covered Ephesus. And this is all in modern-day Turkey. We made our way up to Smyrna, the persecuted church, up to Pergamum, the compromised church, a very beautiful city. And now we make our way down the road to Thyatira. This is like a nothing town. Um, it, it was an expendable military outpost it was sort of like the last line of defense for the Romans. Um, what it was 
known for was, it was a commercial city, and, the, and um, there were tons of guilds or unions, so it was a very blue-collar town. Um, and the town geographically, as it was laid out, uh, I, I think of cities like Jerusalem, you know, where you go and you have like a, a Jewish quarter, and you have a Christian quarter, and you have the Armenian quarter, and I'm blanking on whatever the last quarter is, a Muslim quarter. And, and so all of the land was sort of owned by the unions or these guilds, and they, they owned various jurisdictions. And these guilds, the union was very much intertwined with their own God and their own worship, and much of their worship was intertwined with sexual immorality, but it was a part of their worship. And then sort of like overlaid on these guilds, you have Christianity sort of permeating all of them and, and pulling from a section of them. One of their uh, commodities that they were most well-known for was making purple wool. It was the most expensive uh, fabric that, that, they, that they had at the time. It was, they would extract a, a shellfish called the morax, and then they would basically squeeze it, smash it, do whatever, put it into wool. I never did it, so I'm just kind of, you'd make purple wool. And purple fabric, this was like the, the kingly color because only kings could afford this sort of fabric. We know a person from this town. Her name was Lydia, described in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, when Paul goes into Philippi. Remember, there was no synagogue there. They goes down by the river, and there's the people praying, and there's this woman, Lydia, who we're told in Acts 16, 14, she was from Thyatira. She was a trader of purple fabrics, very well-to-do lady, um, and likely was either the individual or group of teams. She probably was the one who led, just knowing her wealth and her role down by the river. She was likely the one who planted the church in Thyatira that we're reading about today. Um, What's interesting about this story in particular is that this was like a know-nothing, tiny little church in the middle of nowhere, and yet in this tiny little place there's huge problems, and Jesus cares about this little tiny church and their big problems. So we're introduced to him, continuing in verse 18, and we're told that the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like brownish burns, says this. Now, we've already pointed out that every church, each of these seven churches, when Jesus introduces himself to them, he pulls uh, from a facet of a description of him found in chapter 1. So in this case, in Revelation 1.14, he's described as having these eyes like fire and this, the, the feet like burnished bronze. Now, this word burnished bronze is, a, is an interesting word um, in that nobody really knows. It's not a word that's used anywhere else, but they've identified that this type of bronze would have been one of the things that they made in Thyatira. So the people reading this, they would have identified this type of bronze and this metal, and it would have meant something to them. For me, it's like I can barely tell the difference between bronze and brass and steel and like whatever, you know, like I'm, now I'm out of like metals that I can quote from. But this image, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. Uh, This is the Son of God is referenced. Um, This is a direct challenge to the many gods of all of the guilds within this location. They all had their gods. They all worshiped them. 
Jesus introduces himself as the Son of God, not as the Son of Man. If my memory's correct, in, in Revelation chapter 1, he's introduced as the Son of Man, but here he says the Son of God. And it's a direct challenge of these lowercase g gods that he is God over all. It's, it's a direct pulling of the image that's seen in Daniel chapter 10, that D- Daniel has this, Im- this, this vision And the image described there is almost identical to Revelation chapter 1. This is why at the end of chapter 3, we're going to pause Revelation, go to Daniel, and get the foundation for Revelation because Daniel really is part 1. But back in Daniel chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, this is what Daniel writes, considering uh, describing the image that he's seen. His body also was like burl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words was like the sound of tumult, which I think is water. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, and I have dot, 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 letting me know that I cut out some, that he had some buddies with him. And the buddies were terrified. They could hear the voice, but they couldn't see. They're all horrified at this thing, but Daniel is the one who sees the image. And he says, so I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor. He lost all the color in his face. Horrified. Kind of like John. Kind of like anybody that encounters the living God. And I retained no strength, verse 9, but I heard the sound of his words. And as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, face with my face to the ground. It's almost like he just gets knocked out by God in terror. Um, this, this description of God, especially focusing on these burning eyes, is that the, uh, this is what the New American commentator, Commentary says, uh, commentators have long basically agreed that the intent of the reference of the blazing eyes is to focus on the incisive comprehension of the Christ who knows precisely and exactly what is transpiring among all the churches in general, and in Thyatira particularly. So you have this image of this all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God introducing himself to this church at Thyatira that has some problems. And I think that what should happen as they're introduced to this God is that they should have some holy terror within them. The Bible makes it clear, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So from the very beginning, all through the Old Testament, if you want wisdom, if you want to gain appreciation, it begins with the fear of the Lord. And they go, Gunnar, well, that's a very Old testament thing to do. Well, no, it's all through the New Testament. If you go to Matthew 10.28, Jesus himself. You know, we have the image of Swedish Jesus with flowing blonde hair, a robe, just smiling, loving on everybody, kissing babies, you know. <clears throat> Listen to what he says. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Whoa. That's not the Jesus I know. Well, the Jesus you might know might not align with the Jesus of the Bible. Like there's something about the fear of God that that aligns our lives so that we live in a way that honors him. This is what Paul writes in Philippians 2.12. So then, my beloved, 
Just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not talking about getting saved. He's saying you are saved. And so like at Christmas, when you bought that rowing machine, start using it. I'm talking to myself right now because I have a beautiful rowing machine that just sits there a lot of the time. And he's saying, work out your salvation. You have it. Use it. Exercise it. Put together everything that God has given you and use it for his glory in fear and trembling. Take God seriously. So the question is, have you been terrified by God? I hope so. Like, it's a good thing to be terrified by God because when you're terrified by God, it puts your place in proper order. You realize that you're not God. He's God and he's in control. He's the one who designed you. He's the one that created you. He's the one that gives you life. He's the one that gave you everything that you have for a reason. But so often we want to shake our finger at God and say, God, this is what I need of you. Here's your marching orders for the week. I mean, seriously, we treat God like a bellboy. We treat prayer like a shopping list for God. Everything changes when we fall on our face and we worship him. Say, Lord, here I am. Use me. I bring nothing to the table. And so with this tear, verse 19, this is like the best verse of all the verses that we're going get to today, get to today. So encouraging. So this God with the flaming eyes the burnished bronze feet, this image of God that should strike holy terror within our souls. He says, I know your deeds. And it's like, uh-oh, <laughs> like, uh-oh. That's okay. Four deeds are going to be listed. And your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. He says, I know your deeds. Uh, I know your love, I know your faith, I know your service, I know your perseverance. And even better than all of that, he says, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. The trajectory of your life is going up. I've often said that the Christian life should be like the stock market. You'll have like ups and downs. But if you know any financial advisors, and I was, I'm the son of a financial advisor, so I know that when I, from a very little time that I was a kid, I heard two things. The most powerful thing on the planet is compounding interest. That was number one lesson that my dad gave me. <laughs> There's a couple financial advisors in here I can tell. Then the next thing he would say is he'd sit down in his thing and he said, even during the depression, he'd pull out this thing from the company and you can see even through the depression, the stock market, the ups and downs, huge things. But over the course of 70 years of his life, it's done nothing but earn 12% a year over the course of his life. And I've always said it's kind of like the stock market. I mean, the stock market should be like, kind of like our lives. You know, we're not perfect as Christians. But when you look over the last 10, 20, 30 years of your life, there'll be ups and downs. And you have seasons where you're struggling. But as you look over the, the whole of your life, that you should see upward growth. And this church had it that your deeds of late are greater than at first. They're growing. This is a, an attaboy. If you'll turn with me just, just a couple books to the front, to the Second Thessalonians, I think we're, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul writes the same thing to this church. It's beautiful. So it's right before Timothy. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Look at what Paul tells to this church. <clears throat> He says, we, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Brethren, as it is only fitting because of your faith, 
Because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. You can go back to Revelation. I, I, I love this. That, that Jesus to this church in Thyatira, Paul and other places, they see this, hey, you know what, guys? You, you've been doing really good. Your faith has been growing. You've been maturing. And, and they give this attaboy. And I do think that there's a lesson here for us. Like, this is a lesson that I struggle with because I tend to sort of default to Navy SEAL instructor. And what... When I was in that culture, there wasn't a whole lot of attaboys. It was like, no, you're expected to toe the line and you're expected to keep up. And if you have any air, you're going to be kicked out of the program. And even if you became a SEAL, if you do something safety related, you're, you're gone. It's like, hey, nice knowing to you. Have fun out at uh, Chip and Payne in the fleet. See you later. Because we demand perfection. And so there's no like, hey, really good job, guys. You know, you are, you're really you know, communicated well and did all. It's not how it is. But biblically what I've seen, like, and what I've tried to adopt in, in my own life, like in, with my kids and my wife, is like, if there is a problem, you don't just come out with like, you, there, there is something about coming out with appreciation and say, you know, you're really good in all these things. Before you get to the, but I have this against you. Like, I think that there, like, there's a beauty in this church. This is, a, this is a harsh word. But in the midst of this harshness, we see the love of God. We see the gentleness. We see the patience of God. And I think that there's an example to me and us for how we live our lives. Now, before we get into the hard, hard stuff, verse 20, I'm going to ask this to go to the next, you can go to the next slide, and we'll just stay at this, the next slide. So there's a little picture up there. I want to help explain the flow. So basically, verse 18, I mean, it's not exactly 18, probably like verse um, 20. Oh, I wrote it down right here. So... So basically like 19 through 21, what he's going to be dealing with is Jezebel, um, represented by the small circle in the bottom, Jezebel and company. I got this from Charles Swindoll. I did not create this on my own, this image. Um, Verses 22, like the second part of 22 through 23, this is the middle ring, the toleration party. And then the outer ring is the faithful, so like the, the church. And so as we go through this, there's going to be different groups that are sort of addressed. Right away, this Jezebel and company, we're going to deal with this person and their, her followers. Then there's a huge plea for this middle circle. You know, I always like cliff notes going up because like when I was in school, like I wouldn't read the book. I would just do, get the cliff notes and I'd read that and then I would fail the test because the teacher apparently knew that kids were doing this. So I really believe in giving cliff notes to people. So, so basically, there's, there's not really a whole lot of plea to Jezebel and company. There, there, there's, a, there's a condemnation. There, this, this, this person is, is going to get uh, chewing out. 
And, and there's, there's, no more be, there's no more left for this person. Then there's a pleading for this group. Change your way or you're going to be included with her. What I want, this is God, what I want is you to be with the faithful. There's still time for you. And so I, as we go through this, hopefully we'll just leave this image there. Ho- hopefully that helps us sort of like understand the, the flow of thought. And so we're in verse 20, dealing with Jezebel and company. But I have this against you. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. This is where, like, the whole, like, where, this is, like, how do I handle this? I got a whole lot of notes. And I have a whole lot of notes scattered in my head. The, 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 the first thing to see is the problem. In the middle of verse 20, we'll see that that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. So this is the sin of this church that they have tolerated, that they've sort of become like Switzerland, dealing with this very doctrinally wrong individual. And they're not doing anything about it. Um, To understand Jezebel, we need to know about Jezebel. And we don't have time to cover the whole story, but in your bulletin, if you hopefully you got your bulletin, if you didn't get your bulletin, there are, there are handouts in the back that I printed out and included so that you can get like a little thing. This is from gotquestions.org, very good website um, for doctrinally trustworthy stuff. Um, so to start with, let's just say Jezebel is terrible. She's an evil woman, or was. She brought satanic worship into Israel. She did all kinds of horrible things, like after she brought satanic worship into Israel, uh, she had all the prophets killed, like, unless the, they got away. Like we see that they, there were some that were, they were hidden, but she basically executed all of the prophets, all of the, the people of God. Um, she, her husband, now her husband, it, we're not going to turn there. I, just, I was like, I don't know if I was going to go there and kind of go through everything. But if you were to go to, to, to 1 Kings 16, verses 30 and 31, what you would see there is she sort of introduced. But it starts by introducing Ahab, her husband, who was the king of Israel. And basically that verse 30 says, In all of human history, up to this point, the point of Ahab, there was no worse person than Ahab. He was the worst. And then verse 31 says, and just when you didn't think he could do any worse, he met this lady Jezebel and he married her. (laughs) So, So this is like a horrible couple. And he seems to be very like, weak and passive and childish um, to, to where there's the story in uh, Kings 21 where there's this guy, Naboth, or I think, I'm probably saying I've got to read it, Nab- 
Naboth? Am I, you guys, you can look it up and figure it out yourself. So he had this great like vineyard and the king could see it. And he's like, I really want that. So he goes to him and says, hey, you got to sell that to me because I really, really like it. And the guy rightly says, you know, this has been my family for generations. Actually, the law of God says I'm not, we're not allowed to sell it. Like, it has to stay within our family. And, and so Ahab throws a total, like, conniption fit of, like, grand proportions, like what you'd expect from, like, a six-year-old that doesn't get his candy. And while he's throwing this conniption fit, Jezebel comes in and says, hey, what's going on? Oh, I can take care of that. Just, and she forges a bunch of documents, basically has a guy killed to take the property. Her whole life is like a total, just it's like made for the movies villain kind of thing. Even to the very end. So if you were to go to 2 Kings chapter 9, the last seven verses of chapter, or 9 verses 30 to 37, I think it's the very end of the chapter. Um, her end is coming. I think the King James word is nigh. Like it's, it had come. She knows her death has come, so she puts on her lipstick, kind of sticks her head out the window and says, how can I help you boys? And and basically, the prophet says, hey, kill her. They throw her out the window. They throw her out the window. And I think if the story goes right, they, by the time they get upstairs to see what's going on and they come back down or they get the orders, the dogs had come and basically totally eaten her, gone. Like, I think there was a skull and like an ankle or a foot. Like, there was not much left. And it said that her blood was scattered and that she would become dung to the earth. Like, that her name was so vile in God's sight Basically saying the dogs ate her and then processed her and then placed her back on the ground is kind of what the Bible, I mean, it's just the Bible. This is why you don't know anybody named Jezebel. Like it, it, which leads to this, back to Revelation. So when we read, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, it's likely not an actual person named Jezebel, but it likely is an actual individual. It is actually a, a woman who God is calling Jezebel. He's identifying her with the story. Like last week, I think we identified with somebody, but I'm, my brain is too fried right now to, to remember last week. Um, the individual off the top of my head. But so there's this woman who... Huh? Balaam, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That was good. Good memory, Larry. Snickers bar to Larry. Um, so here's Jezebel, this woman. He says, you tolerate her deeds. She calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So what seems to be going on is it seems to be like Jezebel with Israel that she introduced a false religion, satanic worship within Israel through the worshiping of Baal. She did away with the old religions. And, and it seems that what this woman has done within the context of Thyatira is I've mentioned all of these guilds. I've mentioned all of the, the unions that are tied to worship. And she's basically told the people, it's okay to follow Christ and do all of this other worship. Like it crossed the line in the sand from like compromising, like it's really difficult because this is like you have a geldsman who's, who's five generations into this. His business is worth a lot of money. 
and you're telling him that he can't sacrifice to this God that has been so good to him and his whole family, it's okay for him to worship that God on, you know, Sunday or Monday through Saturday, then on Sundays he can come worship Jesus. It's okay. This is called syncretism. When a religion comes in and it synchronizes with the religion there, the Catholic Church is great at this. You go all around the world, you're going to see all different flavors of the Catholic Church because they're the, ma- they're, uh, the I say this as a former Catholic, I love my Catholic family, my dad is Catholic. Like I, they go into places and they adopt the culture and then they sort of blend Catholicism with it. It's syncretism. And it's not gone from like the tension of like, how do we do this to like, it's just, it's okay. And this is like, I mentioned Josh Manning and it's so like, I love being challenged by him. But like the issue of like, like I remember him and there's another guy who was a missionary down in Uruguay that I'm friends with. And he was talking about how he's bringing the gospel and sharing them and they become Christians, but then they had their cultural overlap and I remember uh, Steve is his name. He, he, he said, you know, like I remember talking to this group Then they were whatever their background was. And I said, well, it's just our culture. And Steve's like, no, no, no. Your, it's not your, it's your, it's sin. You can't use your culture as an excuse to sin when it violates clearly what God has said. God will come into our lives and he'll interrupt our thoughts and there is a cleansing that has to happen from our thinking that if your culture is sin and and the way you've always done things and the way your family's always done things is actually sinful, God's not going to say, oh, just blend it in. Just add another rabbit's foot to your keychain for good luck. I'll just be one of them. He says, no, that's sin, that's idolatry and you need to stop it, cut it out. There's no room for this. This is what he would call, what he does call, idolatry. Or not idolatry. He calls it idolatry, yes. But the word that was supposed to come out was adultery. (laughs) They sound a lot alike. So she's been leading God's people away. She is embedded with them. One of the things I want to say before I forget is, I do want to point out, um, it's fascinating. This is a woman. She's claiming to be a prophetess. There's no issue with her being called a prophetess. Um, This church that we're dealing with was likely planted by a woman, Lydia. And so I start, like, like part of this road that they get in is, because we in our age, the church is under attack. We're no longer in a Christian culture. We we are in um, full-blown assault mode by our culture against the church and the people of God. And we're dealing with this stuff. And it's easy to compromise. And then you compromise, and compromise leads to toleration, and compromise, comp- toleration leads to full-blown just like collapse of any distinction between the world's views and God's view that we're supposed to adopt into our life and conform to. So this whole love the sinner, hate the sin... I've said it before, it's, it's good. We are to love the sinner, hate the sin. We've now like moved into, for us, th- this is where it gets really tricky. You know, when we start having like um, the gay pride parades 
And all week, I keep, I, what I keep having is like the hashtag love wins in my mind all week. Um, like I have gay people in my family. Like, I, 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 like this isn't, this isn't, I'm not up here saying, oh, Gunnar's got us all figured out. Like, I, I get the tension, like, the, the whole, like, wanting to compromise because you love the people. And then it's, but then I'm pressed up about, well, what does God's word say? And it's like, man, it'd be so much easier just to compromise and just to kind of say this. But it's like, no, 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 I have to, like, God's word is clear. Like, this isn't about, like, stuff that we're, but, but there, there are churches, pro- probably the majority of the churches in our nation today are this church, that the word of God has no authority anymore. And they're driven by cultural sways and whatever the culture says is okay or, or not okay. And it's gone so far that now Christians will be assaulted by non-believers and they'll, the non-believers will be using Jesus as a tool against you. You're a bigoted white guy because you don't support this. And Jesus is against you. That's like, what Jesus are you talking about? Is this like a different Jesus or something? Are we like, like, because the Jesus in the Bible like is like, like I might not be comfortable with it. We see this with the assault of women and there's been a lot within the church that have done really bad things to women. But when I look at Christianity and the history of it, there's been no more women's liberating movement than the followers of Christ. We're at a church where there's this woman. She's not being condemned for being a woman. She's being condemned for her teaching at a church that's likely planted by another woman. But, but the narrative has been shifted that God hates women somehow and that, that women are second-class citizens. This is not at all what I see in the scriptures. That there are so many different things that God's word, that, that the outsiders are making it say things that it doesn't say. And sometimes it's from within Christianity that is done st- Things that aren't honoring the scripture. So we're to love the sinner, hate the sin. And what I see from God, I see like in Romans one twenty four, as, as all of these great sins are listed. I had to really speed up here. Um, what we see in Romans one twenty four is that God gave them over. And so we hold to God's word. If people want to do what they want to do, that's great. You know, we love them. We, we hold firm. And this woman, Jezebel, what we see here is God says, I, I, I wanted her to repent. I gave her time. I did all this. I, worked, I pleaded with her. I did all this stuff. And she does not want to repent. It was the hardness of her heart that didn't allow her to repent. It wasn't that God came hard. It was that she was the one who basically said, no, God, I want to take this to trial. And it would have been so much better if she settled with God out of court. It's better for all of us to settle with God out of court. Because look at verse 22. Behold, I will throw her into a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Like it's going to get really, really, really bad for her. And, and, and those who commit adultery with her. Now, again, adultery, we don't have time, but James 4.4, 4, Jesus says, you ask, but you do all this stuff, but you're adulteresses. You're basically coming to me, asking me for stuff so that you can go have an affair with me or on me. You got to be careful with those with and who, like those are big, important words. It's like Hosea, great little book. If you want an entertaining read, it's like poor Hosea. God basically tells this prophet, hey, 
I want you to go marry a prostitute. Hmm? That doesn't fit with my like, Jewish worldview here. Yeah, I need you to go marry a prostitute and she's going to have an, she's going to do what prostitutes do while you're married to her. And just stay with her, keep loving her and let her keep going out and have, practicing her business. And then in chapter three, verse one, God basically says, yeah, she's going to go do it again. Just keep, but I want the people of Israel to know how I feel by their actions towards me. They're prostitutes and they're cheating on me. It's like, this is where love is actually intolerant. <laughs> like I'm intolerant because my loving my wife doesn't allow me to, to, to love all sorts of other women. I, I have to discriminate. I have, like, when I say I love you and I'm married to you, that means I'm committed to her. She's actually over there. I'm not pointing to <laughs> Jim in the back, you know, <laughs> just to make sure I'm like, don't want to be off target. <laughs> but, but it's kind of like, and so we say, well, God, I love you, but, but you could, all of these other things are okay. And the problem is that's not what it says in his word. And so he says there's this great punishment. And, he, and, he, he, and in the middle of this, I want you to circle this. So you, we have to catch this. This is where we get into the middle circle here. This is where the pleading. See, she said, I don't want to repent. I'm not going to repent. There's nothing you can do to win me over. And he says, fine, you, you want to settle in court? You're going to go to the jury. And you're going you're gonna to suffer these consequences. And he says, please, if you're in this middle part party, please. Unless they, circled they, that's the middle ring, repent of her that's the center ring, her deeds. So there's a pleading, you guys in this group, repent of her deeds, change your ways. Acknowledge that my ways are correct. Humble yourselves before me. Walk in the path of righteousness. There is a right and wrong. It says, I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he that searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each of you according to your deeds. I clearly have to speed along here. But he says, I'm going to do this. I want you to repent. There's still time for this middle group to repent. I, I, I want you to do this because I want the churches, my followers, to understand that I'm a holy God. I see all, and you're not going to fool me with You're not kidding God with anything. And what we see of God is repent, repent, repent. He's so merciful, and he's so patient with us. And he's describing this Jezebel and company trying to lead the church into destruction like Proverbs 7 about the prostitute that's just trying to entice and to lead onto the path of destruction. And God's saying, stop, don't do that, don't do that. He says, all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. It's all the churches, it reminds me of Psalm 139, 23, where David prays, search me. Oh God, and know my heart and try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. God says, I am doing this and I will do this. And so we say, Lord, show me impurities in my life. Show me thinking that is off. It's according to your deed. Salvation is by faith alone, but we also see that uh, this is what Swindoll says. Uh, I'm going to ask him to help me out here. Through sal though salvation is always provided by grace, through faith, the rewards of the believers will be given or taken away according to the quality of their work. On the other hand, the punishment of the unsaved will also be based on their wicked deeds. So he says this here. This is this whole idea of discrimination. We have to think biblically. 
And God is an uncompromising God. He says, but I say to you, I'm trying to file a thought away to bring back at the end. Verse 24, but I say to you, the rest, so the outer ring. So within this church, these people dominated. They were like the majority. They were really heading down because of the culture they lived in, and, and it was difficult. They'd moved from compromise to toleration. But there was a minority, there was a smaller group that held firm. He says, but I say to you, the rest who in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who do not, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. I love this. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. We live in this changing culture. I keep thinking of Daniel 3 where Daniel and his two buddies are there and the culture is saying you have to to change your thinking. You're intolerant. You're a bigot. It's foolishness. We've erected this huge statue and you need to bow to it. And Daniel and these three guys says, I can't bow to that. There's the true God and if you kill me, you kill me. But like, even if I die, God's faithful. And so Jesus tells this group of believers, hold fast. I know the tide's going against you. I know you're cutting against the culture. I know you're cutting, like everything is going against you and you might seem really discouraged and you might want to compromise and you might want to give in, but hold fast. Keep doing what you're doing. He says, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, this idea of perseverance, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken into pieces as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. This is an allusion to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, normally accredited to Christ. Somehow in this, it's applied to the believers that stay faithful. And I think all I want to say is to these people who are getting beaten down, who are really like staying true to the word of God and staying faithful to him in a culture where it, it, that was not the main, there's hope that, hey guys, I'm coming back. It's going to be okay. And then we hear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm like, what do we do with this section? I I tell you, this is what I don't like about being a pastor. Like everything that's mentioned here, when I was a brand new Christian, just kind of living in my little world and doing my own little thing and I like just wanted to take in more of the Bible and I began taking in more of the Bible. Totally not, not like how did I not see where taking in more of the Bible was leading me? Like I, who knew that Bible college meant that you had to go into the ministry? Like that's not at all what I was thinking. And then as like, my eyes began to go, okay, Lord, you're going you're gonna to send me into the ministry. If, if you asked me this about 15 years ago or so, well, maybe longer than that. We're going back like 20 years ago now. Like, all I want to do is like help people come to know Jesus. And then as I became a pastor and I start like the scriptures and seeing like questions and it's like there's so much false teaching there. And I hate, like I really don't like making people upset at me. 
And all the time I hear it, hey, Gunnar, what you said, you did this. And I, I have to really like, okay, did I say something wrong? Because I'm not like arrogant. Like if I misspeak and it amazes me, there are times when I think something and what comes out of my mouth, like idolatry, adultery, like I don't even catch it. Like I caught that one. And a person will come and say, hey, Gunnar, you said this, but the word says this. And I'm like, I said that? I didn't mean to say that I was wrong. But then there are other times when people get mad at me and they say, well, I don't like what you said. And I say, well, what I say? And they say what I said. I say, well, I don't like that either. <laughs> like, to be totally honest with you, I don't like that. But it's what it says. And so I'm sort of constrained to like, what does God's word say? And now in this position, I have a responsibility to protect this is part of shepherding. This is part, like, discipline. Who wants church discipline? Who, want, like, who wants any kind of discipline? And, and this is a church that God is disciplining because they didn't pay attention to the small things that became big things. My prayer is that we always stay close to the word and we allow the word of God to be the word of God. Um. I'm going to end by reading. You can go there with me, a portion of it. I'm not going to comment. Um, If you go to Ephesians, starting in chapter 4, as I consider this passage, you know, the, the whole love and truth, if you have love without truth, it leads to compromise and toleration in a bad way. And if you have truth with no love, that's not good either. And so this whole love and truth are like the words um, that keep coming to mind. And if, and, and if you go to chapter 4 of Ephesians, beginning in verse 11, we read, He gave some as apostles and prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, the building of the body of Christ. This is very convicting. This is, this is my mission statement. This is, Gunnar is pastor. This is my, this is what God has commissioned me to do, to teach you the word, y'all the word, so that you would grow in him and then you would do the work of ministry. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to be serving and working in ministry. Verse 13, until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God as a mature man, the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ as a result We are no longer children tossed here and there by waves carried about from every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by the craftiness of deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is head, even Christ, from the whole body being fitted together, held together by every by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. We could keep going. Like, like really, like, I, I love Ephesians. We'll skip over, but, but, I, but I encourage you to keep reading. It says, like, hey, walk carefully. The days are evil around you, so be, pay, pay attention. Know what the will of God is. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, I, I think in chapter 5, these first few verses deal with what is being dealt with in Thyatira. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, 
an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting. These are always so convicting to me because I love this sort of stuff, which are not fitting, but rather of giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man, which is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, Awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we see in Revelation this church of Thyatira and these couple chapters in Ephesians. There's a clear call by you for your people to, to live for you no matter how different they look to the culture around them. Father, we thank you that you saved me out of darkness. I thank you that, that when I was pushing against you, unrepentant, unwilling to hear about you, you pursued me. For each person here that is saved, Lord, I thank you that each one of us had that moment when we recognized you as Savior and that you pulled us out of darkness and pulled us into your light. I pray for those, Father, that that maybe are not clear of what the gospel is and who Christ is. I pray that you would connect the dots for them, that they would see Jesus and all of his glory, all of his love, all of his mercy, and that they would understand what his sacrifice meant for them. And Father, you have not called us to live like the world. You have called us to renew our minds, to adopt your thinking, your ways. And Father, our culture and our system is so ingrained in who we are that we often don't see where we're cheating on you, where we are in adultery with you. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us as a congregation to keep our minds on you, to humble ourselves before you, and to allow your word to carry your authority. Lord, help us, for this is not an easy task. The days are evil. We need your wisdom to navigate this life. 
we ask that we would be pleasing to you in all aspects of our life. We thank you, God, for being in control of all things and loving us and being patient with us. And it's in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.